building people up is a good thing. Is uh, it makes me feel comfortable, or as a patient, and hearing things from the doctor, uh, only positive things is fantastic. Uh, being upfront, obviously, is is what you want to do as well. But being put no criticism, what what may have done or not done uh, previous is not going to help. But any support like that is great. Uh, just being supportive, being upfront, tell them how it is. Um, is a good thing. You're listening to the Health Talk Australia podcast, a series that helps patients, their families and friends and healthcare professionals understand severe asthma by highlighting the experiences of the patients themselves. Most of the health messages and news we hear about asthma comes with a clinical standpoint. Our work puts the patient's perspective in the spotlight. My name is Lorraine Smith and I'm a patient experiences researcher. And along with my colleagues, Dr. Daniela E.C. and Dr. Sharon Davis, we interviewed 38 people all around Australia who have severe asthma. We included people from different backgrounds and geographic locations. And as you will hear, they have a very wide range of experiences of living with this long-term condition. You've just heard from Mick, who is in his early 60s and lives near a regional city on the south coast of New South Wales. He was diagnosed with asthma at about 12 years of age, but really began experiencing it when in the army some years later. After the army, he worked with the police as a radio operator. He's now retired. Mick, like all our participants, told us about his daily life and how severe asthma affects his work, social and home life. In our first two podcasts, we covered the personal meanings, expectations and experiences of living with severe asthma, how it disrupts people's lives and how medications are absolutely essential despite the side effects that can occur. Today is our final podcast and our participants share their experiences of how severe asthma can take a toll on relationships, the challenges of achieving a shared understanding with health professionals and advice about coping strategies, as well as messages for those newly diagnosed and those who work in the healthcare system. To begin with, let's start with triggers. Severe asthma can easily be triggered by physical or environmental factors. Common asthma triggers include colds and flu, cigarette smoke, exercise, stress and allergies. Triggers can cause a person's airways to become narrow and inflamed, leading to asthma symptoms. The most common triggers mentioned by the people we interviewed were cigarette smoke, perfumes and exercise. Um, Couldn't work at the hospital where I was the head physio for very long, really, um, because it was just too much in the path of the westerly winds and the shape of the Hunter Valley sort of funnelled it right in them to it and it was not close enough to the coast. If it's a westerly wind, I don't leave the house. You know, we, I read the polling counter. Um, so if it's the wrong weather, we don't open the doors or the windows. I have to teach, you know, um, all the people who come here um, to look after my son have to learn. We actually teach them by the, which way the boats face out the front. So if the boats face left, um, if the boats face left, don't open a door or window, or I won't be breathing. 
boat's face right, it's fairly safe. That was Karen talking about how westerly winds and pollen can trigger her asthma. Dust mites are another common trigger. These microscopic critters like moderate temperatures and high humidity and are found in bedding, flooring, window coverings and furniture. Dust mite faeces is the main culprit and is small enough to become airborne when stirred up. Participants explained how that affected what furnishings they could choose and the need for meticulous cleaning. Tony had to pull up the bedroom carpets and has to be vigilant with washing clothes and bed linen regularly. In the bedroom, we, we changed the bedroom floor to, um, to just with no carpet in the bedroom there. So it's all just timber. So I find the dust, I'm allergic to dust mites as well, so I've been told. We get, we, we get the place fairly well cleaned as far as the floors go. We want to get the uh, dust down a bit in the <clears throat> We change the bedding every week. We, we change the bedding in the streets every week without, without fail. Um, and then and the sheets, you know, the bed, bed uh, the sheet pillow covers every week. We, we change the pillow covers every, every week, a little, little bit more than, more than a week. And uh, my wife always makes sure that she washes my clothes. I can't wear the clothes, same clothes, and more than a day at a time, you know, it's about one or two days. But, and they've got to, got to take them off and get them washed, you know. Even though I'm not sweating or doing, she just says, no, you, if you've had them on for a day, that's it. Change them over. But so I think she knows too that I get, I get affected by certain things, you know. And, uh, you know, make sure you keep yourself clean and healthy and, and you know, away from the dust. You know, she's very good that way, yeah. The most common pet allergies were to cats and dogs, but horses and birds were also mentioned. Some people found out which animals caused reactions and then avoided them, or more specifically, found out which breeds might be okay. But for Diana, she didn't want to live without pets and was prepared to deal with the consequences. I can remember having a, um, an allergy test 20-something years ago and the, the, the doctor said to me, oh, you're allergic to horses. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'll never have horses anyway, but I did. <laughs> Two beautiful horses. I used to go out and brush them, have to be very, have to go straight in, wash my hands and, you know, be really careful to stand up, you know, down, is it upwind or downwind <laughs> from their dander? But, um, yeah, yeah, you just, I had, I just wanted to do it, so I did it. So, yeah, that is so beautiful. Miss those guys. Not everyone with severe asthma reacts to the same triggers, and they can vary between individuals in severity as well as type, and the time to recover also varies. People in this study would like people who do not have asthma to understand this better and to empathise more. Here's Diana again. Her social life is also affected. Well, I, I think the main example for me in my later life is that I don't, I don't like large crowds of people because somebody could be wearing perfume or um, or smoking heaps, um, so I avoid. I always avoid people like that, um, and I also avoid people that uh, smoke a lot, because I just can't be with them. So rather than get to know them and and they think I'm rude because I'm not attending anymore, I just don't participate. So yeah, I think it's a pretty big one too. Um, because I have sort of, you know, people know that I have asthma, but they don't really know I've got asthma, 
you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, what about social life? Well, that's that's the big one. That is, that is the the one that sort of um, I'm talking about because you just can't participate in much because you can't follow up maybe next week or the week after or whatever, you know? As you probably can guess, severe asthma impacts every aspect of people's lives, including relationships, where it can have a profound impact. The people we interviewed appreciated the support provided by those close to them, not just emotional support, but also assistance with activities of daily living. They also spoke about how having severe asthma affects interactions with their family, spouse or partner and friends. Relationships with family varied between people with severe asthma. Some people were quite open with their siblings and parents, whilst others didn't want to burden their extended families as, as they said, everyone has their own health problems. For participants who had asthma from childhood, the support of parents was crucial and several recalled the emotional support provided particularly by their mothers. Siblings, by contrast, did not really understand and were not happy that the child with asthma got more of the parents' attention. Often having a child with asthma completely changed family dynamics. Well, I guess the earliest things were I couldn't do what my brother was doing and my cousins were doing and I think that changed my relationship with my parents too, probably because I was the firstborn of the firstborn on a farm and I was never going to be the, the farming son that my dad wanted. Um, no criticism to him, that's just how it was. And I just couldn't do the stuff that the rest of my family were doing. It probably would have affected them too, but I was too young to realise. You know, I remember we were going down to the Royal Adelaide Show once and we'd stopped overnight at Stirling in the Caravan Park and I had a massive asthma attack and I ended up in the children's hospital and so my brother didn't get to go to the show. And all I thought was they should have gone and brought me a show bag. <laughs> so, yeah, it must have affected the whole family. I mean, Dad sold the farm when I was 12 because he had asthma and I had asthma, so there was no chance of us, you know, I should have been a fourth-generation farmer. So it's changed our whole family. That was Justin. He's 54 years old and recalls breathing problems as a child. He thinks his asthma started as an infant around one year old. Justin worked as an administration officer at a community support service before retiring. He recalls missing a lot of school and it was hard to make friends. Justin likens asthma to a fight. But as he says, he and the condition have reached an agreement. Selena, who is in her early 50s, lives in a rural town in South Australia. She remembers asthma from about the age of four. She recalls having to take medicine that destroyed her teeth and oxygen tanks that left scars where it was inserted. She spent a lot of time in hospitals and had to move away from the family and live with her grandmother until a teenager to manage her asthma. Selena was actually separated from her family during her early years. I couldn't live with my family because where we lived was making me sick. So I went and lived with my grandmother. 
Um, and because, and people don't always understand this, but, you know, you move somewhere and you get a job and you buy a house and you have children and one of them starts to become ill, there's huge decisions to make as to what to do. And back them days, there wasn't a lot of decisions. So, and my, uh, I lived half an hour away from them. So we kind of grew up separately, um, but they spent time with me, but generally not when I was in hospital. Severe asthma affected some participants' roles as parents and grandparents. Having a life-threatening condition as a parent with severe asthma means that grown-up children may have to step in or put their lives on hold to assist. For those participants with younger children, the effect on the child's mental health from having a parent constantly struggling to breathe right in front of them was very difficult. Often, the person with severe asthma felt guilty or a sense of failure when they couldn't help family members or participate in important family events such as weddings. Karen's son gave up an overseas scholarship to come home and look after her. And now I haven't worked at all for two and a half years. Um, And so, you know, this has been the biggest adjustment ever. I mean, my son was in the States, he came home, um, he was on a scholarship playing soccer and doing a degree over there. He was at a transition point where he had to change colleges, but he just went, no, I'll come home. Um, so he's taken on, you know, so much housework and helping out with his brother and um, my husband's had to take on, you know, a lot of the things I used to do. Um, also, you know, everybody's sort of sleep, sometimes gets disturbed because I'm up so much. Um, it, it changes everything for everybody. And Shannon has a younger child and she worries how her severe asthma affects him. I say to my son, well, you know, when mum is in dire straits, how do you feel? Because then he would explain to you that, oh my God, he used to walk around. I was scared. I, I hated it myself because, like I said, I was worried that he was worried that I wasn't going to be here anymore. He was in tears more than what I was because I was trying to be... St- Having my asthma, tra- having my asthma attack, trying to be strong for him, you know, to say, well, you know, I'm going to be fine, it's okay, even though inside my head I'm thinking, oh my god, am I or am I not? Because that's how I felt too. Because that's how scary it was. It was just, yeah, horrible. And then, like I said, I just now stress with it every day. Regarding the relationship with a spouse or partner, participants in our study talked about the loss of intimate relations, their partner becoming their carer and the strains on their relationships. They learned through experience what needs to be done to adapt to their particular situation. Despite this, the person with severe asthma sometimes felt that their partner isn't really able to to grasp exactly how bad the situation can be at times. Some people took the decision to remain single so as not to burden others with their illness. Here's Kim talking about how she's lost interest in sex because as she says, she's too bloody crook. I can't do anything, I can't kiss, I can't breathe. <laughs> and I'm not interested anymore, I'm too bloody crook. <laughs> I'd rather go fishing. <laughs> I seriously would. <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't actually mind dying alone. And I won't be alone. It's my best mate in the whole world. 
And that's enough. <laughs> I think probably now he'd like my relationship again after everything we've sort of been through together, but it's not possible. I couldn't keep up with all that was required of it. And that's sex, that's the whole lot, eh? I couldn't think of anything worse, I'm gonna be honest. I couldn't think of kissing on anyone as anything worse. I like what's coming in my mouth is air, and to do that would block it, so yeah, no. Making friendships and keeping them ticking over can also prove tricky for people with severe asthma. People we talked to felt socially isolated through having to avoid places where they may catch an infection or where there are strong scents. They also had to ask sick people not to visit them, which was at times seen as being rude or fussy. Sometimes they were simply not well enough to go out, and this could lead to a variety of emotions, such as a lack of self-confidence and feeling left out, but at the same time not wanting pity or special treatment. Some found they lost friends because of their asthma and others felt they found out who their friends really were following their severe asthma diagnosis, and these friends were a godsend. Whilst Justin has kept his friendships from work after leaving, he hasn't made a new circle of friends since then either. I've got a very good circle of friends, but that circle of friends hasn't changed since I left work. That hasn't increased since I left work. I can't go and do sporting activities and make new friends. Um... I don't need to make new friends, but I think that I would never move from here because I would have trouble making new friends because of the asthma. You can't join a sporting club um, and I can't work. So it's, it's, it puts, us, puts the brakes on. Gemma was embarrassed but touched that her friends were there for her in times of financial need. You know, like... Um yeah, so when I first got really, really sick, um, financially it was a disaster. We didn't, we couldn't afford. I mean, when you go to specialists and it's five hundred dollars a pop, and you're on a pension, it's like, where does the money come from? And two of my friends gave me, like, one of my friends gave me three thousand dollars, and the other gave me fifteen hundred dollars. I didn't ask for any money. In fact, I was totally embarrassed by it. They said, oh, no, it's there for you. And I was like, you know, I couldn't believe it. But their response was so different to my family that I actually was, I was blown out by the whole thing. With all the challenges facing people with severe asthma, having some coping strategies to deal with their asthma and its consequences was important to the people we interviewed. These ranged from the importance of planning ahead, finding different ways to do things, to learning to be independent. Not everyone was able to manage by themselves, with some people having family members as carers. Of most importance was the need for acceptance of the illness and ways to manage an acute situation. Let's hear Ian give a nice summary of how to live with severe asthma the best way possible. It's not an unsurmountable problem that you can live a normal, productive, happy life as long as you do the right, sensible things. Take your medication, take your doctor's advice and 
stay out of situations that cause you problems, that you probably know what they are. I don't imagine that it's something that you just wake up, as I said before, you don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, wow, I've got CAPD today that I never had yesterday. That don't happen like that, I don't think, does it? That's a general rule. I would imagine it's a progressive thing. Don't do silly things. Like how your Brenner said, don't smoke. Um, don't panic. Try and be calm when you're having trouble breathing. Don't get excited or upset. Turn your mind to positive things and breathe slowly. Hassan likes to get out and be active, socialise and work. So I try to go out and be active, you know. I feel if I stay at home and do nothing, I feel worse. Maybe my body becomes worse. So I like to be active, to be in the society, to socialise with the people and, you know, work, work making me alive. Patsy is in her early 70s and was diagnosed with asthma at 30 years old. She lives in a regional town in Victoria. She's a retired trust officer living with her husband. She feels she was in denial about her asthma for quite some time. Her workmates didn't know about her asthma, only that she had a bad cough. Here she talks about how she does the best she can to be part of things, even if she is struggling physically. It's in a situation where there's people and we're having a good time and maybe my body's telling me I should leave, I won't, because I'm, I want to be part of it and I want to enjoy it. So that's what I do. Remember that I used to do that in state school and I thought I'm going to get up and do this dance. By the end of the day, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this dance, but I thought I'm going to. But I was, you know, I really shouldn't have. I, you know, it took me a while to get my um, decorum back. But I didn't say anything to anybody. I just um, sat down <laughs> till it passed. Acute shortness of breath can be a common occurrence for people with severe asthma. Our study participants stressed the importance of not panicking. Strategies used to calm themselves included concentrating on breathing, listening to their body and being aware of the warning signs of an impending attack, exercising willpower and reassuring themselves. In fact, as I've got older, unless I'm very, very severe and, that, and when, that's, when I'm like that, I'm actually scared, um, I don't even hear the wheezing and squeaking and stuff like that like I used to when I was a lot younger. It's just like there's nothing and I can, I, I can well, I'm a bit too covered now, but um, I can feel my diaphragm pumping and pumping, trying to, to breathe. Um, it, it's, it's alarming and you've got to try and keep yourself calm but you can't explain to someone else when it's happening how you feel because you're just struggling for your life. That was Helen explaining how she finds shortness of breath scary, but she still tries to keep calm. Exercise was mentioned by many participants as being helpful in managing their asthma, as well as keeping up social interactions with others. It's important not to overdo the exercise and stress the body, though. Here, Michael describes how whilst exercise can be good for his asthma, it's important to build up slowly. 
I think that the big thing with managing the asthma has been exercise. Um, swimming, I don't do a lot of now. Um, walking, yes. Bike riding, not enough. Um, you do have to watch your weight. Um, the more weight you have on the body, the harder it is in terms of the breathing. Um, again, you're stressing the body out. So it's a matter of even when exercising, not over-exercising. Um, physical exercise can act as a trigger for asthma and certainly you sometimes see people in gyms who are having asthma attacks because they've just pushed themselves way too far. Again, build those things, build up your exercise slowly. Don't just jump into it and expect you can swim 20 laps of an Olympic pool. Just do it slowly because otherwise you will actually stress the body and trigger asthma. Another important aspect to managing severe asthma well that our participants raised was how effective communication between a patient and a healthcare provider is an essential part of good healthcare. People in this study told us about what happened in practice, how they liked to be treated, and the characteristics that they liked and disliked in their healthcare provider's manner. A key message we got was that healthcare providers need to listen to what the person is actually saying, not what they expect to hear, and to show empathy. People with severe asthma want to feel supported in their efforts to manage their asthma, to be provided with explanations as to what to do and what needs to change. Some people were happy with the relationships with their doctor, but others said that they were made to feel to blame for their illness or simply not believed. People we talked to would like healthcare providers to treat the person with severe asthma as an individual, not to label everyone the same way, and to be sincere. I'd like them to talk to me as if I am an intelligent human being who could understand things that they're doing and they're saying if they put it into context of my understanding. So not making it simple language, but making it understandable language without jargon. Um, and I'd like them to talk to me as if I am the client, not the patient. So they're working for me. Um, I think that's a very different way to how they see it. Yeah. So they're doing the work for me. Um, they wouldn't have a job if I wasn't sick. So that's how I feel. Um, it's so that we're equal, not, not they've got the professional hat on and I've got the patient hat on. That was Gemma. She wants healthcare providers to see people with asthma as clients rather than patients. In terms of the actual information to be provided, participants appreciated the doctor being upfront with their condition, that is explaining exactly what is going on and what to do. When the situation was explained clearly, some people with severe asthma said they are more likely to accept things and take their medications. However, some healthcare providers do not provide explanations, which participants found frustrating. 
Several participants spoke positively about their healthcare provider's knowledge, noting that they know their stuff, are proactive and think outside the box. Maria appreciates having a GP who will tell her exactly how things stand. I think it's really important to have a really good GP and one that will tell you this is how it is and this is what you have to do. Because um, maybe, like lots of people, maybe GPs get a little bit complacent too, especially when they're seeing you all the time. You know, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm great, when you might have been wheezing all night or something. So um, I think it's really important to have a really good GP and have a good, good communication with your GP and get onto a good specialist if you need to be with one and take your regular, your regular medication. <laughs> That's really important. Justin describes the expert knowledge his specialist shares with him and he even considers the financial costs imposed by taking a lot of medications. But he's very good. He explains how the drugs work. He explains the difference between the drugs. He explains why he's not re recommending this drug. He explains why this drug is better than that one. He even considers the cost of it, um, which I found amazing. Um, you know, the last visit he said, if we need to, we can do without this one and this one, but you're doing very well. So I prefer not to, but if you can't afford it, we can cut these two out, which I think is amazing. No doctor has ever done that. So I'm really pleased with that. I can't fault that service. There is good evidence to show that when the healthcare provider and patient share information, discuss preferences for asthma treatment, consider the options, and both agree on the treatment, that asthma health is improved. Participants in our study had different takes on this. Some found this process empowering. Others preferred to leave the decision to the healthcare provider. A common theme was that the healthcare provider is the expert on the condition of severe asthma, but the patient is the expert on living with the condition, and the healthcare providers need to put themselves in the patient's shoes. It was important to our participants that healthcare providers put individuals' situation and needs first. Sometimes they feel they are viewed as a case from a medical text, which is not helpful to a good relationship with healthcare providers. Let's hear from Leanne. She's in her early 40s and lives on the south coast of New South Wales. She was diagnosed with asthma at about 16. She had her heart set on being a criminal medical examiner, but had to adjust her expectations due to her severe asthma. Here she explains how she sees a difference between textbooks and real life, which needs to be acknowledged by healthcare providers. That's one thing the medical profession need to learn, I think, in the hospitals is don't be so... Um, don't be so sure of themselves without really checking, without knowing the patient first, which is a big mistake they make every day. Like me, I see it. <laughs> some of the younger ones, they treat like we know nothing. Then they treat, or they treat the older ones like they're too stupid to know anything. And I can't get my head around where the nurses and the doctors kind of 
cut their common sense off, I suppose. It's like, well, we're telling you this, so this is how it is. Um, no, you get that out of a textbook. That's not how it works. You know, deal with the actual people who've got the problem or get the problem yourself and then come and talk those statistics out. Because they'll be different. <laughs> All the time, different. People with severe asthma appreciated healthcare providers explaining about medications fully as well as discussing lifestyle. Having something in writing or a plan to refer to was also valued by people in the study. Something visual such as a drawing was also useful for people with severe asthma when trying to understand certain concepts. Michael talks about how important lifestyle education is. The big thing for health professionals for me is actually they're explaining what is going on for people with severe asthma. Also what is available for them in terms of medications, but also working with them in terms of lifestyle. Lifestyle is such an important issue in terms of severe asthma because your, your lifestyle can influence the asthma you experience enormously. So it's that combination of lifestyle and medication and, and answering the questions, explaining to people what's going on physically as well as how can you deal with that. They're the issues. Many of our participants had messages and advice about living with severe asthma for both patients and health professionals. Our participants spoke about how they wished to be treated. They wanted to be active participants in decisions about their treatment, not be seen as the disease or be talked down to, but rather be viewed as a client. People with severe asthma would like healthcare providers to be positive and supportive and not to judge people with severe asthma for their life choices or blame them for their situation. Marion realises that patients do not behave perfectly, so messages may have to be repeated. I guess you have to accept that people won't necessarily do what they're told and you may have to tell them to do the same thing several times before the message finally sinks in. Um, and also maybe, I don't know, maybe accept that we all make bad decisions, you know, and we're allowed to, that's life, you know. I eat more chocolate than I should. Um, but, you know, that's my choice. Um, and so, Maybe they'll come across people who just aren't up to acknowledging that they're in the place they are and they will struggle with doing what they need to do to keep them healthy and you've just got to try and I think fight that compassion fatigue of I've told you this and you won't listen to me. I think you just have to accept that some people are going to go down that path and as a professional you just have to put on your little professional suit and say, OK, here we are again. Let's take it from the top. And this is what we need to do to get you better and this is what you need to do if you want to stop coming back here all the time. And Helen wants to have a personalised connection with her specialist. I think for me, it's, it's all about... Based on how I've been talking about my specialist... It's about that connection. It's about feeling like he's talking 
with or asking questions of me. Not uh, not a patient. Like it's it it's a personalized It's hard to have a personalized connection and relationship with someone when you're seeing them for the first time whether you are the medical provider, the care provider or the patient. But it's for me so important like I've said earlier to feel heard and understood. Moving between services can disrupt the flow and exchange of medical information, which can be very frustrating for patients as well as health professionals. Our youngest participant, Logan, describes the challenges of moving from a paediatric to an adult asthma service. Yeah, more so than I feel like the last two years of peds was probably the best because they sort of realised, you know, been going there for 12 years, they had a full understanding and now that we've changed, None of the none of the paperwork followed through. It was just like a whole new patient again. And I think what made it worse was because they moved from um, Peter's Hospital to the new one. Our interviewees commented that people newly diagnosed with severe asthma shouldn't try to do it all themselves, but seek support from family and friends and keep them in the loop. They encourage people to voice their feelings and take the opportunity to talk to counsellors or asthma educators, as their perspective is very different to doctors. Frank found counsellors can advise about daily living. Because a lot of people don't know how to cope with it when they first get it. They don't know how to handle, who to talk to, how to go about. Yes, your doctor can talk to you, but he'll talk to you in a medical sense. I'm talking to you, a counsellor who can tell you what's good for you and your family. If you're not certain. I've spoken to them numerous occasions. Carpets, the light fittings, heating, areas to go and visit. Made my life easy. And Michael speaks about the importance of support from family and friends. And there's an element of fear. It's the not knowing what it's going to, what impact it's going to have on your life. It's actually reassuring that person that asthma is, it's not a death sentence, it's not going to have a major impact in your life, provided you acknowledge that it's there, what can I do about it? And actually find out what are the triggers, what are the things that you can do in terms of your own life that will support the lifestyle you want to have, including asthma. That means support from the people around that individual as well, not just the medical profession, their families, their partners. Um, finding, I think I've used this term before, finding the right balance for them in terms of their life, living a full life with asthma. So that concludes our Health Talk Australia Severe Asthma Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed listening to them. Through these podcasts, the team has tried to bring the personal to the forefront of the often incapacitating disease that is severe asthma. While good medicine saves lives and is particularly important for the management of severe asthma, we think it's important to also understand the lived experience, the nuances, challenges, joys and heartaches of living with a long-term condition. In so doing, we can help individuals, families and communities to become better informed, make wise decisions, know what to expect from their healthcare professionals 
and make a positive contribution to healthcare delivery in Australia. Thanks for listening to Health Talk Australia. You can find us on www.healthtalkaustralia.org. Our website features video and audio clips of people's health conditions and related experiences, such as carers' experiences of mental health, physical well-being and mental health, and infertility. We have an ethical funding policy and we do not advertise on our website. The Severe Asthma Project was funded by the National Health and Medical Research Centre of Research Excellence in Severe Asthma. I gratefully acknowledge the ongoing support and collaboration of my colleagues, Professor Renata Kukanovic, Dr Kate Johnston Utter Utter, Dr Daniela Easy, Dr Sharon Davis, and our Severe Asthma Project collaborators, Professors Helen Riddell and Kath Ryan.